Welcome to the Managing Your Multi-Passionate Life Show. Your host, Carol Dixon Carr, is an educator of and a participant in many eclectic subjects, and she loves it that way. Each week, she'll bring you episodes and stories on how you can navigate those multiple passions while managing your mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional energy in your life as a whole. So here's Carol. Hello, my multi-passionate family. I hope I can call you that. So today, we're talking about self-esteem and the identity pigeonhole. Because I think that there are a number of people out there who probably tried to put you in a box at some point and said, based on what they thought they knew about you, gave you a label. And those inaccurate labels are particularly annoying, aren't they? Of course, you know, we can code switch depending on our environment so that people may only see, for example, a work persona. But sometimes people will try and attribute some label to us based on their own filters, their own biases, their own perceptions, their own life experiences. Of course, there are, you know, there are things that are literally true, like I am Carol, I am Daryl's wife, I am Maya's mom, I am Professor Dixon Carr, Prof DC for short, at the university to my students. I'm a number of other different vocational titles too. But unfortunately, there are also names that people attribute to me when they don't even know me. But just by looking at me, their mind is made up. And their mind is made up in not a very favorable way. So that's not fun to deal with. But it was fairly recent when I, well, maybe in the last decade or so, Almost a decade ago, I finally said what people think of me is none of my business. And I was trying that one on for a bit. I didn't always, didn't always believe that to be true because sometimes it does matter what people think of you, but the right people. Anyway, I digress. But I have talked a lot about that square peg round hole identity. I've done it. You know, I've done this a few times, haven't I? But I didn't really recognize that I didn't fit in until probably first grade because I was more of an introvert as a kid. I was an only child until my sister was born when I was almost five. So I was really good at keeping myself company. I had a vivid imagination and that little toy piano that my parents bought me, that was my best friend. So I didn't really pay much attention to other kids, not even in preschool, not until elementary school. So I was actually a pretty confident kid when I was in my own little world or out with my mom and my dad at the time. Mom even said I was, (laughs) I'm embarrassed to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it. She said I was pretty self-possessed, conceited even, and not terribly gracious when people complimented me. God, that's so the opposite of who I am now. Uh, but let me tell you what she told me. I said, I don't remember it. I'm Like I said, I'm super embarrassed about the whole thing. But she said whenever people would compliment me, I would either just say, yeah, I know, or I would correct them. Like if they, for example, someone, you know, it's just like a sweet grown-up would say something like, and they're saying this to my preschool self, so there's that. <laughs> but they would say something like, those are such cute pigtails. My mom had my hair in 
you know, two braids on each side. You look at the Jill Scott album. I look pretty much like that. But my mom said I would reply with all the indignity of a four-year-old. These are not pigtails. These are braids. Holy moly. How bratty is that? Oh my gosh. And it's not like my mom didn't know how to raise me right. I just, she was a good mom. I'm just super embarrassed that I don't even remember saying it because I'm super mortified that those words ever came out of my mouth, even as a four-year-old. But as you heard in earlier episodes, you know, it's, I think the first episode I talked about how it was a struggle once I got to elementary school. Remember, I had a hard time connecting with kids because of this weird, quirky, eccentric way of being. I'm still that, but I ac- at least I accept it now. That's the difference. Yeah, but back then, and even for decades, I mean, it did a number on my self-esteem. And I really think it's awesome if you've had a great self-esteem from the very beginning. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's really cool, you know? (laughs) um, Nathaniel Brandon, one of the most notable psychologists on self-esteem, actually put it nicely, although his language is more gendered, so I'm going to change it a little bit. So he basically said, there is no value judgment more important to man or woman, no factor more decisive in his or her psychological development and motivation than the estimate he or she passes on himself or herself. I agree. And there's this this concept called the secret self-esteem that I was introduced to in the mid-90s. And it's actually the secret or hidden self-esteem in particular that will get you through those very dark spots in life. It will actually enable you to find a valuable lesson each time you face these obstacles that are bound to happen in this life. So what is that? The hidden or secret self-esteem is how you actually feel about yourself deep down. It is the most accurate description of how you feel regardless of what obstacles are thrown in your path. It's what you feel about yourself no matter what the environment is throwing at you. I mean, I know I have a lot of redeemable attributes. I even knew that back then. It was kind of buried. but uh, And I didn't go around daily talking about it publicly. Though, you know, these days I journal about my gratitude. I so said, thank you for giving me these different attributes in, in addition to all the other things I'm super grateful for. So if you're self, if you're, so if your secret self-esteem is strong, then you will be able to deal with stress and your relationships so much better. You'll be successful by your own standards, not like the vision that somebody would put on you, but your own standards. And you won't feel compelled to even brag about it. Your surface self-esteem, however. That can vary widely depending on the day of the week. It is definitely a temporary feeling. Or it, hopefully it is, but sometimes I felt like maybe it wasn't. But the whole point around the surface self-esteem is that environmental factors can play a huge role in how you view yourself. And it most certainly did for me. Because, you know, quirky, weird, eccentric, But, you know, I was still pretty perplexed and I would ask myself, well, what's wrong with me? Most often my self-esteem was pretty low, probably for decades, if I'm honest. And I really would let my environment dictate how I felt instead of what was more likely true. I would be thinking, okay, so 
Am I not good enough? Is that what society's trying to tell me? Am I too this? Fill in the blank. Am I too fat? Am I too short? Am I too black? I mean, I would just fill in the blanks. Or I would pendulum swing to, or am I not enough of that? Am I not good at this thing? You know, it was a stupid little loop that I would just keep tormenting myself with. And yeah, so my surface self-esteem was definitely battling my secret self-esteem. And you know, thank God my mom and my sister would support me and the few friends that I had, although they all still thought I was weird, but they loved me and they would praise my attributes. But I even got to the point where like, well, and thank God I did have people who loved me and do have people who love me. Not everybody feels that way. So I always felt loved by at least one somebody. I thought that they were saying these nice things just to, because they did love me. They didn't want to hurt my feelings. So it took a lot of mentoring, coaching, counseling for years before I could really own that I was actually a ninja at a number of things. But it took me a very long time to realize it. So what I'm hoping is that you haven't ever fallen into that not enough trap or the I'm to this trap. But if you have, I invite you to consider that it's probably not true. It's probably not true at all. Took me a long time, but um, now I'm just kind of telling. I know you can't flip a switch just like that. It does take work. And some of you might have already heard this, but a lot of times our brains are set up to focus on the negative because that limbs, that limbic system, it takes over. It's where all the emotional reactions take place, especially fear, you know, that fight or flight energy. This is where all that negative self-talk stories originate. It's where the amygdala hijack and irrational thought happens. It's a lot. And we have seen evidence of that in abundance, especially since the pandemic hit. I mean, just take a look at social media. Even during the election period, all of that, it's hard sometimes to watch. I had to hide some people for that reason. Because a lot of times we just don't listen to each other. And so I've been super mindful about that. When I see things that just like are blatantly offensive, I'm like, what is there come from for them to believe that? And I did. So I have a few people who are supporters of a party that I, I just I don't get <laughs> just I really don't get it, especially certain elements, because I mean, there are some some things on the other side of the aisle that I do agree with. But I am always, always listening to see where they're coming from for them to think that way. So I wish that we would listen more for understanding. I also wish more people, myself included in that category, would consciously put, instead of the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex, which is the creativity center. I wish we would put that back into the CEO office of our lives. And we could do that if we were conscious about it. We can do that with deep breathing. We can do it by, we could actually do it by focusing on just one single task whether it's washing the dishes or journaling or something even more complex, doing or, or, or something light like laundry, even if it's just three minutes, although the experts suggest at least 25 minutes, especially if you're doing something artistic or uh, scientific. But man, did I go off on a tangent or what? And what a soapbox. All right, stepping down for now. Let me get back to the issue here. Anyway, it took me a long time to actually notice that maybe I should go ahead and let passion dictate what I do in the name of pure fun. Not any kind of 
obligation or anything, but just pure fun. In addition to the things that I've already committed to doing. So, gosh, I figured it was a better idea to f follow the vision of others that, you know, they had different ideas for me based on my practical and analytical skill set. So it really wasn't until 2012 that I would just try the passion for fun thing. And in 2012, I was already in my mid-40s. But then I just said, you know, I finally said, let me just go in and follow passion and not have any kind of attachment to the outcome. That was really the whole idea behind that. Just try not to have an, an attachment to the outcome. So with the help of other mentors, coaches, my support system, eventually, eventually, my self-acceptance gradually came into play. And I started intentionally doing things that I was passionate about. And if I could get paid for it, any of it, that would just be a perk. So when I finally figured this out, in 2012, when I started to wake up in 2012, I actually decided to follow up on, follow up on something that I actually chickened out on in 2010. <laughs> well, in 2010, I was still smarting from 2009, and episode three talks all about that. But because of my passion for music, I had applied to be a private one-on-one -on -one music teacher. Students would come to my house as an independent contractor back when this company actually screened the applicants. And I did get an invitation to be interviewed back in 2010. And I chickened out. I didn't reply. I mean, I got an email reply saying, yeah, we'd like to interview. I did not reply to the email. I did not follow up because all of the self-doubt about getting paid for a passion just clouded my thinking at the time. But then a couple of years later, fast forward to 2012, I remember being in Taos, New Mexico, teaching a summer course. It was microeconomics, I think. And I was working on my lecture when I was sitting at the in the computer lab and the urge to teach music again hit me. I was just like, well, where'd that come from? That feels out of the blue. But usually out of the blue is more like an intuitive hit. And I think uh, those of you who are naturally intuitive kind of know that. Or a little God wink. Or a universe wink. Whatever you want to call it. But... When that came to me that time, I was feeling a lot more whimsical. And with that whimsical, higher vibration energy, I reached out again with no, ex really I didn't have any expectations. But when I got back to Dallas, there was an email saying that they wanted to do a phone interview. And I was like, yes. So I was going to follow up with that interview. And I was, my passion completely sh had shown through how my love for music, my love for, you know, when I was teaching the kids choir at my church at the time, it was a volunteer gig, but still I enjoyed it. And they hired me. <laughs> I was like, whoa, did not expect that. But wow, oh my gosh, I love this idea. I love to teach. That's a superpower. I love music. Love it, love it, love it. Putting teaching and music together, that should be magical. Well, in that excitement, I was feeling like that, but yeah, after I hung up and after I was like, yay, yay, I told my friends, then I freaked out. I freaked out after the initial excitement and yeah, I still had imposter syndrome. It really took those good reviews from students and their parents on the site to roll in, to give me the validation and I, it's hard not to want that outside validation and I, I guess I needed it. 
So then, in 2017, that's another five years later, on another whim, it's usually whim, and it's also trying to fulfill my own personal need. I like going to other people's classes at the gym because movement is such a, movement is such a good mood regulator for me. It really makes things so much better for me psychically, physically, emotionally, mentally, all of it, spiritually. And for a while, there's some of the I would show up to a class and then they would no show and I'm just like, this keeps happening. And I'm like, I want to dance. I want to lift. What the heck? You know, so again, on a whim, I Facebook messengered the area manager of that club at the time and say, what do you have to do to audition to be, say, a group fitness instructor for cardio dance? And she says, well, come up with a couple of routines and... Can you come in a week? I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I can turn this around in a week, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I tried. I didn't get it the first time, and then I came back and I got it. And I was turning 50 that year. So that's the, well, am I too old to do this? Nope, nope, I have a passion for this. Keep going. And then another thing. Well, I look strong. I do. But I certainly I certainly do not look like a fitness instructor. So I'm just like, hmm, am I too fat to do this? no. I'm not. You know why? Because when you see me move, you'd see pretty quickly that I've got stamina and endurance. So there's that. <laughs> then I got the Pop Pilates certification because I fell in love with that format. And I found out about that because that class came right after my cardio dance party that I taught. And when I got that certification, that instructor was probably also relieved because she could sub her classes out more freely because if she could not teach the class, the class would get canceled because nobody could take that slot. But anytime she needed a sub, I, a sub, I was her girl back in 2019. So my acting on my passions in a public, whimsical way, before, you know, beyond doing the performance stuff in recent years has actually paid off. But it really did take my psyche a while to get to that point. But I think that the non-attachment, that was the real kicker. If you don't have attachment to the outcome and just kind of treat it like an experience. No, treat it like, well, treat it like an experience, but treat it like an experiment. I think it makes the process go a whole lot more easily. And I think me treating it, or am I treating it like a like an experiment, it actually helped my Self-esteem be generally healthy. You know, I still have my moments, my insecure moments. Those hardly ever go away. But, you know, especially my secret self-esteem, that one, and often my surface self-esteem. And right now, nowadays, you know, my vision is my vision. No one can put me in a box. I used to try getting into those boxes by people I thought knew better than I did. And I often hated it, as you know. And often when we're not happy, we do show up differently, whether it's inward self-sabotage or self-loathing or lashing out to other people worse. And um, you've heard the stories. But what if we could start our day consciously thinking about how we'd like the day to actually be from start to finish? It's not always going to be perfect because, you know, life. But if we start with an intention, it's likely to help immensely. And it's also likely to help us cope as the obstacles come our way. And so now I'm suddenly reminded of something that uh, Professor Neil Lester talked about this past summer. He was on a virtual symposium and he was 
but he's a mover and shakeover at Arizona State, and he has this movement called Project Humanities, uh, Humanity 101, actually. And the project is essentially approaching each day through the filters of compassion, empathy, forgiveness, integrity, kindness, respect, and self-reflection. So if you could keep, like you, me, all of us, if we all can keep those filters in the back of our minds, or even in, even in the front of our minds, that I believe that would help things in life progress in a positive way for all of us and the people around us, and especially with self-esteem. Especially with self-esteem. If you're anything like me, you don't want to believe the things that don't resonate. So let's kind of make a pact to work together, if it's applicable, because you might already have it going on in the self-esteem department, and you can you know, forward this to somebody who has self-esteem issues that might need some tips. But yeah, if it's applicable, well, let's kind of look, work hard to keep that secret self-esteem strong or work to strengthen it with a playful, whimsical, humble spirit. Well, but yeah, humble spirit. Don't be four-year-old Carol. <laughs> Please don't be her. I don't ever want to be her. I don't even want to know who that was. <laughs> But anyway, keep reminding ourselves that there is so much good in us, though. So we want to do that. Because you can, you can be aware and confident without being, you know, a jerk about it. So yeah, let's do our best to keep our surface self-esteem in tandem with that healthy secret self-esteem, even with those environmental factors. Because what starts as an idea can often become a conviction. So we really do need to pay attention to those thoughts. I keep talking about thoughts. I really do want us to be mindful about the ideas that come into our heads. Let that prefrontal cortex into the driver's seat. Yeah. Let that take over. All right. So with that, I will talk to you in the next episode. Take care, everybody, and always remember to enjoy your journey along the way. Thank you for listening to Managing Your Multipassionate Life with Carol Dixon Carr. Be sure to check out her free resources in the show notes. And if any of her words resonate with you, feel free to subscribe and leave a favorable review. Until next time.